A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by my company, Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. This is going to be a panel because while I clearly am not shy about talking, I want to give others in the community a voice too. It definitely shouldn't only come from me. We should be hearing from many different people doing this. If you want to participate in a panel, please do get in touch. You can go to datameshunderstanding.com to see some of the other free community-friendly programs and the other learning resources we have. And you can check out our actually quite reasonably priced offerings. So let's hear some fun music and then jump into a quickish summary of what you'll hear about in this panel. Panel, leading a data mesh implementation. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? Guest host Kim Tease, who's the director of intelligence automation at PayPal, facilitated a discussion with a number of people that are leading or have led data mesh implementations, including Ferd Sheepers, who's the chief information architect at, at ING, Mike Alvarez, who's the former VP of digital services, at a large healthcare distribution company, the guest of upcoming episode 200, number 236, and Omar Kawaja, head of business intelligence at Roche, who's the guest of episode 96. As per usual, all guests were only reflecting their own views. Scott note here, I wanted to share my takeaways of all this rather than trying to reflect the nuance of the panelists' views individually. Before we jump in, though, I think the main takeaway here would be a data mesh implementation leader's journey can be a lonely one. Find peers and exchange information. Everybody after the panel was connecting with each other so that they could actually continue the conversation. You can reach out to me, but there are also many leaders that want to exchange information with each other that are doing data mesh. The other is the meaning of the word journey. It's never done. Be prepared to continue to push. It can sometimes feel feel Sisyphean, but it's important to keep moving forward and expect to continue to drive buy-in. If you think that you're just going to do it once and everybody's going to be on board and it's all going to go golden, you're in for kind of a rude awakening. So here are my top takeaways. Everyone sees kind of the, quote, Instagram photos version of other organizations' data mesh journeys. It's not the reality. Everyone is struggling with certain aspects of data mesh, because if this were easy, people would read your Mac's book and be done with it. It's just not realistic to expect that, given your your leaders, you know, give your leaders a break. 
you know, including if that's yourself. Number two, it's incredibly important to understand you will get things kind of quote unquote wrong, but scratch that. You will get many things wrong, but wrong in data doesn't have to mean wrong for good, you know, for all time. It's about trying, learning, and iterating to be better, really looking into that fast fail practices. If you feel the need to get everything right, data mesh, you know, in my view, is definitely not right for you right now if you're not willing to try some things and have them not work out. Number three, a champion early adopter is crucial to drive a data mesh implementation. There needs to be someone who will partner with you that is, quote unquote, brave enough to try new things, as Omar said. Number four, it's easy to focus on so many aspects of data mesh and forget that the mindset shift and cultural change are the biggest challenges for most organizations. They're the most squishy, you know, least tangible, but that doesn't mean they aren't absolutely crucial. Number five, teams need the autonomy and empowerment to move at the right speed for them. The more friction in their data work, the more time and effort it takes to deliver value and the world can have moved on. You have to give teams the capability to strike while the iron's hot. That's a good way to drive buy-in. We're going to give you the ability to move at the speed of business. Number six, be very clear on expectations. What do we owe each other? Focus on how data mesh drives value for them, but also how it drives value for the organization. What is the output of their work? What value comes from what they did or what they will do? It'll be quite difficult to change this kind of thinking overnight, though. Again, so much of this stuff is give yourself a bit of a break. Number seven, similarly, be very clear on responsibilities and be very clear on target outcomes. It's easy to get lost in the work instead of what are we trying to achieve. And those target outcomes can change. That's totally fine. It's again, having these conversations with folks, but be clear about what are we actually trying to do here. Data data work for the sake of data work is not valuable. Don't do that. Finally, of my top takeaways, number eight, a good success story doesn't have to be a massive win. Time to delivery is really valuable. So so showing getting something into MVP in a few weeks will get a number of teams excited. Imagine what you could do if you could try something out in just a couple of weeks. You know, driving that lower is of significant value and it's a tangible value for many business partners where they can reasonably share you know, about the impact that that would have to their business. Now, there are a whole lot more of these takeaways in the show notes if you want to check those out as well, but I think those are the, the top eight that are the kind of most important to take from this. Okay, with that summary of my top takeaways, and you can see the show notes for more takeaways if you'd like, but let's go ahead and actually hear from our awesome panelists themselves.
everybody. Um, I'm Kim Teese. I am the Director of Intelligence Automation at PayPal. Super excited to be here today. And we have an awesome panel with us. Um, why don't we do some quick introductions? So Omar, you're up first. I'm going to give a quick introduction of who you are and what you do. Yes, uh, sure, Kim. Thank you so much. Glad to be here uh, talking about data mesh and experiencing with a great set of colleagues. Thank you, Scott, for pulling us in together. Uh, so I've been uh, involved with the data mesh implementation since uh, late 2020, early 2021, uh, when I was uh, the head of BI for Roche Diagnostics. Now, uh, since last three and a half, four months, I've taken a different role, which happens to also put me on the receiving end as a data leader of one of the informatics domain. So today, hopefully, I can shed some lights on both sides uh, of the coin over here. Uh, I'm based out of Switzerland and uh, looking forward to the conversation and learning from today's session. Awesome. Welcome, Omar. Uh, Mike, I see you up next. Do you want to do a quick introduction? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, to echo what Omar said, thank you for uh, hosting today and thank you for moderating, uh, Kim. But um, yeah, so uh, my background was in, I started out as an engineer long ago, did consulting, did startup. Uh, about ten years in an international finance company, and then my last nine, and we're at uh, in a in a large healthcare distribution company where I led various data strategies and, and data implementations. Um, but we started in on a uh, you know relevant for this conversation, started on, on down the data mesh journey. I think before we even heard about data mesh, we were really looking at data as a product, uh, and then we heard uh, about Gemex work and uh, just learned a lot of lessons learned over the last couple of years. So happy to be part of this conversation. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. And third, you're up next. Yes. Uh, well, to echo my colleagues, thank you very much for uh, inviting me and, and having me as part of this panel. I uh, definitely look forward to the conversation. So uh, I've been uh, doing uh, data architecture at ING for the last 10 years. I'm leading anything around data and analytics from an architectural perspective there. Um, have seen the different iterations of trying to manage data and indeed looking at data as a reusable asset uh, at a big bank. And roughly, I'd say five years ago, we started to come up with a concept that today I would call data products, uh, but it was literally uh, the same thinking avant la lettre. So before there was even such a thing as data products out there, but really starting to think about what are the reusable assets, how to manage them, how to operationalize them, how to make sure the domain thinking is brought in there rather than having these big canonical data models that hopefully nobody believes in anymore. Awesome. Great. Thanks for that introduction. And um, for everyone else on the phone, I'm Kim Teese. I found out about Data Mesh just a little over a year and a half ago. Again, kind of the same stories that you guys are sharing, thinking about data as a product, thinking about domains, but also coming from a software engineering background most recently and thinking about containerization. How we can do it differently and better is really what led PayPal to the Data Mesh solution. So really excited to jump into this conversation today on leadership and and how you got data mesh done within your organizations or got the story out there. Um, it was Scott was talking to us earlier just before we started about, you know, it's kind of lonely out there um, as you're going out and creating these stories and trying to sell the concept of, of data mesh. So we'll dive into that a little bit today. I think one of the first things to get started is how did you even start that conversation with your leadership and how did you sell it? I think it would be great to hear some of those stories from across the team. How about Mike? Yeah, I can jump in. But um, 
you know, ours, ours kind of followed the heels of a, we, we, uh, I spearheaded what would I call our, our, our enterprise data lake, uh, you know, a few years prior to that. And it was a you know, kind of a data lake house architecture. And I think that really made sense for that setting. And then when I, I moved over to what's called our fuse organization, which was our, really a commercial product or commercial product organization. Um, you know, the team was very product centric. I mean, everything we were, we were building commercial solutions for the healthcare setting. Um, and um, I think, you know, part of it was that product centric mentality. Uh, the team also had a solution there that that they they knew needed to change, and it was also a central monolith. And I think, at least in my experience, what I've what I've done over time is I kind of collected those we we call them failure modes or reasons why the last thing didn't work out. And I you know I tried to embed that in our our centralized data warehouse, and then also kind of recontemplating how we were going to approach data in this commercial business unit. And we really. Um, and this time, I really wanted the teams to have the the autonomy and empowerment to move as fast as they wanted to move. And we also had this philosophy that those are those who are closest to the customer understand those problems the best, and therefore they should be the ones solving it versus the centralized team. So that's kind of how we started thinking about it initially, and then it kind of just evolved into this this you know the data mesh concept, which, which we were building. We ended up building kind of a platform that would have automate and kind of help teams to manage you know manage their there are mesh nodes essentially, but it's really how it started um, for us on our journey. Ferd, did you have a similar experience or what was your experience? I know our listeners can't see the nods, but you're nod- nodding vigorously as Mike was speaking. Yeah, I, I definitely recognize uh, quite a bit. So we started from a, did a bit of a different uh, perspective. So uh, we implemented a, a big data lake architecture over the last several years. And uh, we made uh, the choice at that point in time to have this in a replicated model. So every domain, every country in essence, had its own data model, its own data lake. Um, and we started to uh, describe something we call the ING Esperanto. So a canonical set of business terms that we all need to agree upon across countries because well, we need to have a, a one way of defining what a customer is, for example. Uh, that actually led to a lot of standardization and, and reusability, but it also led to every domain, every country still having their own implementation and a lot of complexity in consuming these things. So when we did an update on the architecture pointing towards making this actually a, a single data platform for the bank, we also needed to change the way we actually treat data from kind of like a country perspective to a domain perspective. Uh, so we started to draw the pictures that today I would definitely call data products where we said, well, we need to have something that is the data from, say, the payments world. And it should actually follow the domain taking. So also it should follow the industry models out there that everybody recognizes around payments, which is the ISO 20 or 22 format. Everybody knows this, but we're doing something different because we're taking a different angle. So we need to fundamentally change this approach. But it's still a tough sell because people are actually thinking from a certain perspective and having this idea that you need to trade data as a product with all that it comes with that idea. I'm not sure you guys have managed to sell it everywhere, but I'm still struggling, to be honest. Yeah, I think I'm struggling too. Um, and, you know, I think part of the conversation, it sounds like you guys are coming in from an architectural perspective. I know at PayPal, we came in more from a business case perspective to be able to get in and show that it could work. And now we're in the process of selling it to other teams. So we came in with a specific use case. 
Omar, what was your experience? Uh, so I, like many of the people in my company, as well as I think also on the call, went through Jamak's article back in 2019. And my first reaction was I, I closed it after reading it. <laughs> and I was like, uh, who is this person? You know, because uh, it has nice, nicely described my entire career of what has happened and called it, it doesn't work. <laughs> So creation of data warehouses, whether on-premise in the cloud, data lakes, Hadoop, all of those things. And it hit the spot on every level. Uh, and uh, luckily, when I joined the company, uh, Rosh, where I'm working for, I was uh, in charge of uh, creating the BI analytics strategy for our division, for my department. And uh, uh, I kind of inherited a few things. One of them was legacy uh, infrastructure, uh, legacy architecture, which was the best few years ago, but not anymore. We have progressed so fast in this industry. Uh, at the same time, uh, data has very clear, not an IT job anymore. It's a job which requires cross-functional effort. So there were a lot of things which pointed out to a fact that we cannot build another data warehouse in the cloud or yet another data lake on somewhere. So what are we doing differently? And at the time of the creation of that strategy, data mesh was not there, really. It wasn't. It was uh, just when Jamal published her second article, and I was, I was like, look, uh, let me reach out to her. Let's see if the pandemic allows us to collaborate. Let's understand what is this all about. Uh, I do not believe in everybody going out gung-ho on the platform. So what does that uh, decentralization really means, et cetera, et cetera. Um, plus, if you look at the four principles, depending on who you are talking to, where you're coming from, your understanding and your background might influence what, what those are. So understanding domains from DDD perspective is different from what really we are learned or we have learned in data mesh implementation. Um, I've been on my journey on becoming a product leader in IT and tech world. So I really like those approaches in general. And having that mindset change was fantastic. That appeals appealed me at least a lot. Um, the platform side, uh, I must say, in the beginning, I kept away from it a lot. Uh, and we have tried to apply that we need to do platform in a different way so that it is making those teams' life simpler rather than how things used to be when the platform team was doing everything, for example. And lastly, in the beginning, there was no awareness of what on earth is this federated computational governance? Uh, what does it mean? How to implement this? Because I have not come across any single line around governance being used in a positive context whatsoever when it comes to data and analytics. It has always seen as a bureaucratic organization, red tape and all of those things, right? So, um, uh, I mean, so that's where I was. And uh, I do believe in this, the process, people, technology triangle uh, and uh, to me, the biggest factor was this approach was the first approach that I've come across, which was hitting mostly on the social side and less on the technical side. And I absolutely loved that. And 
Um, I can also see that my uh, our company having a very decentralized culture really liked that concept. But how do you bring this to life has been missing. And uh, gladly we worked out on how things work. We, we are not perfect. Let me be very open. Uh, we still have conversations. Why do I need to change from a data lake to data mesh? And... Um, uh, uh, and understanding what does data product means, for example. Uh, so those challenges are still there and I think will continue to be there because it's not a one-time project or initiative. It's it's something which keeps on as the life is going on. So, yeah. Yeah, I think you bring up a, a, a good point, Omar, that probably every one of us on this call and the listeners have faced is how do you approach that conversation that, um, federated governance conversation with your even your enterprise data governance partners. Have you all had success in those conversations? And what are some tips or tactics that that you tried to enable that conversation and get buy-in? Yeah, I, see, I, I know for us, we, um, yeah, because you, as you said, Omar, uh, governance ended up being kind of a very, um, it just, it, it had a lot of different meanings. Um, and I think we had a lot of, uh, we had a lot of data voices around the company, right? So I think there was a lot of, when you said governance, it would spark a certain thought or a certain team or a certain process in people's minds. So honestly, I tried to stay away from it entirely. Um, computational governance really sounds funny or, or, or um, trendy, right? But nobody knows what it means. Um, but we really tried to focus on, uh, you know, the basics of what would, what would a team need to be successful? So we, you know, we focused on discoverability. So being able to find the data um, you know, and, and making it very clear to teams that, hey, this is your responsibility. You got to treat this thing like a product, right? And you're going to understand who your consumers are, understand the problems you're solving for those consumers um, and make sure you're prioritizing those. And, and, and also realize you're serving more than just your team, right? Because a lot of these teams are, even though the the, the mesh was uh, distributed amongst the, these different teams, with which sat in different budgetary areas, we made it very clear to everybody that this was a community. Um, and then, you know, my team, myself and my team's role was often kind of being that kind of glue that you know, makes sure that the, the community operated, um, you know, kind of in the best interest of, of one another. What was your experience, Ferd? Um, well, you know, I work for a bank. So governance is pretty much uh, something that is, uh, uh, that is a given. Uh, even though when I started with all of this, um, I'd say governance was a four-letter word, um, and we were in the, the peak of agile and you know independence and autonomy and all those lovely things. So uh, it took a while for governance to uh, around data to become something that was understood and, and, and implemented. I think over the years we went a bit overboard with governance, uh, so we started to govern everything rather than that what was necessary. So I think it was a very natural uh, moment in time to say, well, you know, let's bring governance back to the essence of what we want to do. We want to understand who uses the data for what, and we want to understand what the data actually means and who is better to actually define that than the people who truly understand the data rather than the central unit within the bank that actually knows a lot about governance, but not so much about the real, <laughs> the real data that we're looking at. Uh, so it was, I think, um, the right momentum. We went a little bit overboard with governance. So this was a good moment to say, let's bring it back to the essence, uh, put it there where it makes sense, 
There are still some things which I think as a large international organization, you do need to govern centrally. Uh, but that's a small part of what we do. Most of the governance should really sit with the people who understand the data because they're the ones who make the data ready, not just for themselves, but also for others. And that's really where governance comes in, right? If you look at your own data, governance is not necessary. You do it when you make it ready for others. Yeah, and I think that's the paradigm shift. And, you know, hand in hand with governance is your business partners in understanding this process, right? And buying into that, yes, I own this data. I'm going to help with this data. I will provide the context. What was your experience, Omar, in um, working with your business partners and especially executives as you brought these concepts to the table initially? Anything that you learned or any um, people that became unlikely champions that really helped to bring your business cases to life and, and allowed you to get the data mesh underway? I, I think it's an absolute necessity to have a champion, early adopter, the, the crazy people that are there in the company who wants to, who are brave enough to try new things. And usually you have one or two in every company. Uh, I was lucky to have my partner, big shout out to Stefan, who came up, uh, who trusted us to go on this adventure. Um, we started the journey. We created a team. Team didn't do anything for two, three months. We realized that just putting a team is not going to help. So we need to do other things. Uh, for example, having the right framework, right approach. How do you really bring the data as a product to life? What does it mean as compared to what we have been doing in past? So we had those learnings in place. Uh, what does it mean to have a outcome first approach versus I want a dashboard kind of an approach? Um, how do you open up from IT only teams to cross functional teams uh, with various level of uh, skills and capabilities? Um, uh, how do you pressure test your platform team, which is trying to uh, step away from the working of what's happening within the domains and yet take a teacher coach role, for example. These are big changes. These are mega changes that are happening. Um, it ranged from people realizing, oh, I am now responsible for things. Nobody magically is creating something for me. It's me, my four people, six people, two pizza size, whatever you want to call it, uh, those type of teams who are now responsible for it. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it was in some cases after four or five months of trials, it was that light bulb moment, aha, this is how it will work. And uh, uh, in other way, it also meant that we were making small baby step progresses around all the four principles. Uh, in the beginning, you may not need massive focus on federated governance because it's just one team, one domain who's doing this work for you. Uh, the risk is small, for example. Um, the risk is also whether the use case that have identified is within the domain context or it requires other domains as well, because if that's the case, how do you bring them on at up to speed, et cetera, right? So we have those discussions. Um, we talked about what is the level of learning uh, agility and the, what is the uh, you know level of people to learn new things, technologies as well as way of working, both of them side by side. Um, we talked about we need to let go of few things 
and that that was not easy for people to do both on IT and business side. Uh, and then now we are at a stage where we join the meeting and an outsider cannot tell whether this person is IT or this person is business. We are talking about, hey, we have equal level of understanding on what outcomes we are trying to do, who's going to use my end product, etc. Uh, but this is not the case in every domain. I'm talking about those teams who were very early adopters, like back in mid-June and uh, quarter three, 2021, as compared to the new teams who are onboarding right now. So you have all of those things there. So we, we, we did that uh, step by step. Uh, I think the biggest thing that is a good success factor and create momentum is small wins. The realizations, very quick realization and the marketing that we should do about them, what these principles are bringing to us. So if we are able to bring business and IT together, whether it's subject matter expertise and technical skills together in one team, rather than doing this you know, requirement gathering and six year and six month and five year projects. If we can show, hey, our MVPs are up and running in four weeks. We know what we actually delivered. We know who's going to use it. We can actually monitor it. Great. Um, people, uh, that creates a lot of positive momentum out there. And I think we should leverage those. We should talk about them. Um, and it goes back to some of the fundamentals of product principles, right? You have a customer reference which you are have using to promote your product. Uh, it can be the whole data mesh. Uh, it can be your platform. It can be the approach with uh, IT and business leaders can use. Uh, and uh, sometimes uh, we, should, uh, we should find some time every quarter or every six months to also reflect upon what did not work, which is equally important part of this learning journey. Yeah, I know the experience at PayPal, ours may have been a little bit different. I know with our team, we had a very specific business case and we had a business sponsor that was very excited about getting good quality single source of data that was specific to his business need out there. And so we had a really strong champion in the background that created a, an opportunity for us to work a little bit in a bubble and then to partner with our enterprise technology and data partners to bring it to life. Um, so our unlikely partners were actually in enterprise data governance, where we had a very strong business partner. I don't know, Mike or Ferd, if you'd like to share a little bit about how you um, created relationships with your business partners or how you helped to realize the value of your implementation from a business perspective. Yeah, we. Um, I think early on, we, we well, one, I was convinced we had to do something different. I just, um, I just I saw too, too many solutions over, over my, you know, my time in, in technology just just kind of go the same way where um, it was it was really that I, I believe like these the centralized teams can't scale or just they, they reach a point of saturation so that was kind of one thing I was trying to solve and the other one was around um, they don't really understand the data and you know I was part of those teams and I would say no no we can scale and no we understand the data um, but at the end of it it was it was always like I'd run into a business leader who'd be like listen can you just give me an ODBC connection into that thing so I can just do my job, right? Because, well, why do you want that? And it's like, well, uh, they're too slow. They don't understand. I got, you know, I got to kind of spoon, spoon feed them all the requirements. And um, and I think when you, you know, when you take that into, especially into a product environment, it just doesn't work. And like, I think like Omar was saying, I think we had really had technology and business people together as one team Um who wanted to you know take the chances and try to build the product and see if they could find product market fit um 
but we just we had a we had a my data science team was engaged with another team and it took us you know months to get you know things configured in cloud and then months to get the data and figure out who the data owner was and could we use it and it just it took a really long time so that kind of began that that was our initial use case of okay we really need to kind of shorten the time to first query from from months down to to days if we can and then really then then the maniacal focus became on you know that that the team that was enabling the mesh okay how do we what problem do we solve for them so they can move more rapidly and then we just went around and, and, and found other partnerships and other teams who were then willing who had similar problems right yes i want to move more rapidly yes i want to commercialize a product or commercialize data uh, so we we found a you know we kind of went through the organization and found people that wanted to partner through through that approach yeah and on our side very similar um the approach that we had led to a lot of issues on business and tech side, IT side. Uh, on business side, everything is too slow. Well, I think you all recognize that. It's it's hard to do. It's hard to find the people. You're always struggling getting on the backlogs of those central teams because they're way overloaded. And as Michael saying, they really can't scale. On tech side, you know, you take away the responsibility on the teams that actually know their stuff because they know the systems of record. They know where the data comes from. They're actually savvy with the data. And all of a sudden, they have to hand over their work to other teams, and there is multiple handovers. And again, there is this whole thing like, yeah, not in this print, maybe next print, all these lovely things. Um, so there's a lot of people that once you explain what this means to them, they're on board and they really want to partner with you. Uh, I must say at this moment, I think even the central teams uh, are now convinced that this is the way to go. Um, because they also realize they can't scale, right? They literally are, are running into boundaries of what they can deliver and their understanding, especially if you get into the more complex areas of data. Um, so the momentum is definitely there to, to do this. And we are also trying to do this now with, as Omar was saying, uh, these, uh, these success stories, right? I mean, we need to get a few of those things really highlighted to uh, the highest level in the organization. And that creates the momentum for getting the next ones going. So we have a few big ones out there. But also little ones, right? Just uh, very small initiatives and they define the 0.1 alpha version of your data product and get it out there and do it in, in a sprint or two. And okay, it's not perfect. It's not great. Uh, but hey, it'll solve today's problem. And it shows that we can do it much faster than in the past. I think that is a really key one. You have to show these, uh, these successes faster, less handovers, more autonomy to teams. Those are really important. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Ferd. And when you think about um, return on investment, so we haven't talked about budget and how you guys went to get budget, but we have measures of success. And measuring that success may be one thing with our teams in terms of how much data we've got on board, how much we're bringing together, how far we've gone with the features that we've developed. How have you tackled those conversations from business perspective? Um, what are the outputs that you're either measuring or talking about as you share your success and work on getting continued investment for your projects? So I, I think we really tried to focus on um, kind of the business value we were delivering, right? And kind of really make that, um, you know, what the, the, the team that was kind of in, enabling the mesh for the other teams essentially um, you know, really focus on what their business strategy was, what their North Star was, and then making sure that we could show kind of direct, you know, kind of lineage into how we were supporting and enabling them. 
um, and how that was going to be better than other alternatives that they, they could choose internally. Um, that was one. And then the other one, I, I really tried hard uh, to figure out a, a kind of a, a, our own monetization source, right? Because it's anytime when you're kind of secondary or you're shared, I think um, it becomes a challenge then to, to seek funding, right? But we definitely aligned ourselves to the kind of the big strategies, the big, the big uh, value drivers in the organization, and then kind of align what we were doing. Because if, if you have a list of 100 different capabilities you could deliver, um, you got to make sure that those that that list, because you know you can't deliver 100 and maybe 20, that list of 20 then is aligned to the kind of the biggest value drivers in the organization, you know, for that, you know, whatever, for that fiscal period. Omar, Ferd, any thoughts from your perspective? No, I, I can say from our side, a lot of the, the value drivers are just making sure you're compliant to what the regulators ask you in the most optimal way, which means with the least technical debts, with the least rework that you need to do in the future, which in the past was often a struggle, right? I mean, you want to do it in the right way. Uh, then actually you're struggling with the time frame in which you have to deliver it. So you choose many of these technical solutions and then all the time you need to clean them up. And, you know, the business is very aware of the costs of technical debt because we make them now responsible for cleaning up the technical debt. Um, this is for us really an enabler to do it faster and do it, well, right from day one. Um, and we actually are able to scale up much faster and deliver much faster than we were able to do in the past. That is a real clear value driver. Also, because if you do it in the right way, as a bank, you can show to the regulators that you're in control of your risk, meaning you don't have to reserve so much capital for actually you know, uh, taking care of that risk. So that is truly a positive business case, literally to our uh, uh, you know, business partners. They now have less capital allocation for just managing the risk, which is great. Absolutely. Um, I see we're getting close on time. So I'm going to switch up a little bit. And I want to ask you guys a little bit about failure. So we've all had the experience of successfully getting to our initial MVPs and and, uh, getting those up and going. But if you could give two to three sentences of advice to someone who's getting started, what type of advice would you give them on things to avoid or something that's easy to miss that you learned the hard way? Uh, I can start a um, couple of things. Uh, and the first and foremost, step zero, ask yourself whether data mesh is right for you. Uh, I still think it is not fit for every organization out there. Um, it's great for many organizations set up, look at the culture, look at the team setup. All of those things are extremely important. Uh, it is truly a paradigm shift. So if the company is uh, really uh, not big on change management and trans- uh, type of things, then uh, be careful getting into this. That's the first step zero, right? Um, failure to do so will not result in anything good, frankly speaking. Um, second thing I would say, just putting people together, throwing bodies at them is not the solution. It will not work. I, that's at least my experience to it. hundred um, uh, percent. At the same time, putting teams together with the right combination of people and uh, continue to guide them and trying to find a framework that they can repeatedly use and keep evolving that is the it's a good 
thing to learn from, for example. Um, another failure could be uh, renaming the slides that we have been preparing and calling them data products and calling them data mesh will not result in any value. And then in a few years, we will go back and say, see, this is not working. This is not data mesh. It did not add value. Of course, it did not add value. We did not try anything. So how will it add any, show any different results? It's insanity, really an insanity to do that. Changing, <laughs> renaming slides does not work. So that's me there. Uh, leaving business out, complete no-no failure to me. Uh, uh, so that's some of the things I can uh, top of my mind right now. I'd say from my side, huh, uh, biggest failure is make this a technology discussion because it's not. It's much more of an organizational and uh, uh, you know an approach discussion than it is a real technology discussion. I mean, I have so many people that tell me, you know, what is the data mesh product? I mean, that's not the question to answer right now. That'll change all the time, but the approach is fundamentally different than what we've been doing. And the second one, and, and you know, as an architect, uh, we tend to do this a bit. First, try to figure it out completely before you get started. That is also a no-go. We don't know how this will be done perfectly. We don't know exactly which guardrails you have to put in place. Just really try it. Uh, fail fast. I mean, this is the perfect way to go agile. Fail fast. Learn from it do it better in the next iteration and really explain to the people around you that maybe you don't know it perfectly yet, but you know it's definitely going to improve very, very fast if you just try it and, and you know you allow us to fail a little bit here. Yeah, I think uh, two of my four are the same as Ferd's, but I think, um, yeah, so I, yeah, I'd say don't focus on the, on the technology. And to me, this is, this, this is more of an operating model shift, right? You're, you're changing how teams deliver value. Um, and be iterative. I think the other one's kind of the same as same as first. But I think I've just found in my experience over time that I think for whatever reason, data people, data team, they want to make sure everything's perfect and then they want to put it in production. And it's like, no, if you can make that, you know, I would tell my like my, my data scientists all the time, if it depends but depending on the model you're building, but if you can make a if you could deliver me a five percent better intelligence on the stock stock market or something, whatever it is. I'd take that today and then 10% tomorrow and then 15%, you know, versus a hundred percent three months from now. Um, the, um, the other two, I'd say that, you know, kind of one, one is making sure that the team has a clear line of sight into what the target is. I kind of recognized that while I thought it was clear um, initially, the team was kind of running and didn't know exactly um, in which direction they were, they were heading. So I think we had to pull back and say, no, this is the target you're, you're trying to shoot at. Um, and then the last one was around, this is something to spend a, a bit of time on too. Just, I don't think, I think because we've been thinking about things in a centralized manner for, for many years. And in the case of data, it's been since the times of, you know, Inman and Kimball, right? We've been centralized, centralized. And now when you say, no, you're, you're we're going to decentralize it, right? Each team's going to have their own autonomy. I think people just, there's a, there's a mental model understanding of shift that, that they have to go through to really understand what you're trying to achieve. Um, and that you need to get the, the the business as well as the technology teams on board with that with that new mental model. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think you know from the PayPal perspective that in, environment and appetite for transformation was the biggest make or break for us. Um, we were in an organization that embraced it. We got moved as as reorgs happened into an organization 
where, you know, things had worked the way they had worked for a while. So learning how to navigate that and have the right conversations, um, especially about decentralization, um, Mike, you touched on it, and it really is a completely different way of thinking for many of our, our end users, right? Our strategists, our analysts, they're used to going to a centralized model. And so getting the buy-in, not only from the executive leadership, but from the actual users of, of the final product are really important as well. So any questions you think we should have covered in this podcast that we didn't? To me, it's a little bit of an experimentation still, but there's in, in the back of my head, I mean, we spent the first months just, you know, cause I really was seeking validation. I didn't want to do the new thing just to do the new thing and be the next, you know, the next new failure kind of thing. Um, but I really sought a lot of validation initially. And then over time I became just kind of, you know, just really, really, you know, kind of highly convinced this was the right way to do it. And then it became, you know, execution against that. And then with the execution, I know we faced, I knew we had faced some things and we were going to face more obstacles and more challenges. But I think when you, especially like when you decentralize things, and I think it depends on the company and the funding, but um, if you have different teams who are funded by different budgetary areas, right, then one team's not going to want to build something on the behalf of another team. But if they have a, a data domain that serves many people, you know, that was coming into question, like how could, you know, want, and, you know, how do you d- develop these kind of um, in this community, kind of these guiding principles that they, we all have to kind of agree to in general. And then when we run up against one of them, okay, how do we stick with it? Right. And that's kind of the, the things we're you know trying to, trying to consider or, if a data asset becomes so highly used and so reusable, then it doesn't move into a central team like the one I was leading. Um, so we, that, those are those are bridges we really hadn't crossed yet, but I could see those being difficulty for teams as you really, to me, I think the node is, you know, or the the graph is kind of every, you know, not, not it shouldn't be flexing a ton, but I mean, I think there's opportunity to kind of split things apart or bring things together or kill a node because it's just not delivering any value. But I think those should all be kind of parameters and KPIs that you know should help you understand kind of how how the mesh is operating. So I, I think one of the things that I, I clearly see is that kind of how much of a guardrail do you want to put in place, right? I mean, on the one hand, you want to say autonomy overall, right? I mean, just do your thing. Um, on the other side, uh, it is all about interoperability. I mean, you have to put some things in place just to make sure that those individual data products can actually be used together, right? I mean, if you don't at least agree on your master terms and how you manage them and all these things, it's going to be really, really hard to consume data products from different domains if they don't even agree on what a data product is. So we do have to put some stuff in place. Um, how we try to approach it is really... Um, we do some workshops around platform thinking, right? So what is a platform? What makes a platform successful? And it's all about, you know, uh, producers of data, uh, they need to understand the consumers and consumers at some point in time, they start to have, you know, a way of consuming things, but potentially they say opportunities also to become producers again, right? They see a number of data products, they make a combination product about it and they put it in the market. Why would you want to do that? Well, ideally, because there is an incentive to create a data product because there is a level of, maybe I hesitate to use the word, of monetization around the data, right? I mean, I offer something to the platform 
and I get something in return for taking on this responsibility to create something with all the non-functionals that come with that because all of a sudden I'm delivering something to the world and the world depends on me. Uh, if this thing doesn't work, they don't call the original owners of the data. They now call me in the middle of the night. So there better be something in it for me to do this. This whole idea of monetization and, and you know attaching a value to a product and how to sell that in an organization which is very sensitive to not creating the impression that we sell data outside, uh, that is my biggest challenge. How do I really create this internal uh, platform concept with a level of whatever, ideally monetary value, that flow from taking ownership of data and making it available? That's a really tough struggle. Omar, did you have anything you wanted to add to that conversation? Uh, it's a it's a real struggle without a doubt. We were exchanging a few emails the other day that why would anybody do it? You know, it's like, who is the first mover advantage and why not wait for everybody to do it? And uh, it is, uh, I think, um, it shows where the organizations are and where the mindset is because if you... Forget about why would I do it and do it because I'm doing it for the whole organization. Uh, and I'm taking that ownership of making data reusable and findable and loving, giving it the love and care it needs rather than uh, treating it as a burden to support, for example. That's a mindset shift. Technology allows you to do it. It's a mindset shift, which is people are missing right now. Uh, and to me, that's a change management topic, uh, frankly speaking. Um, at, at the same time, one maybe additional note to mention uh, with respect to those failures is that not to fall into the trap of people selling data mesh platforms or data mesh software out there. That's not a thing to, to fall under those traps, for God's sake. Uh, whoever is listening, you will not go anywhere if you do that. Um, thank you guys for all of your thoughts and your input. Thanks for bearing with me my first time facilitating a podcast. It's been a lot of fun. I'd again like to thank the panelists today, guest host and facilitator, Kim Teeth, who's the Director of Intelligence Automation at PayPal, Ferd Sheeper, who's, who's the chief architect at ING. Mike Alvarez, who's a former VP of digital services, leading a large healthcare distribution company, as well as guest of episode 236. And Omar Kawaja, head of business intelligence at Roche, who's the guest of episode 96. You can find a link to each of their LinkedIn's in the show notes and some other relevant resources there as per usual. Thank you. Panels really are my favorite. And no, it's not just because I don't have to do the hard work. I, I swear, they give you a chance to hear from folks entirely devoid of my own views, which I think is crucial in our learning journey to figure out how to do data wet mesh well. Hopefully this one was super useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show. Almost all guests have said that they'd really love people to reach out. Data Mesh Radio is again provided by Data Mesh Understanding and is produced and usually hosted by, you know, except for these panels, by me, Scott Herleman. Do check out our website, datameshunderstanding.com, for more information. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by our offerings and some of the free programs out there. I hope you have a great rest of your day. And with that, let's hear that funky outro music. Mm -hmm.